0: to you there. Hello there. Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography Podcast. Today, my guest is Phyllis Amon. She is an ambassador for conscious aging life management, the founder of Mindful Longevity Solutions. She owns the trademark for empathy, the hallmark of the empathy project. She is a best selling author, a coach, a gerontological speech and language pathologist, dementia care specialist, and A podcast host. Wow, that is an exhausting list just thinking about and saying those titles. It's a hell of a lot of hats that you wear and quite an extensive resume. How on earth do you find the time for all of this and how do you prioritize and how important is prioritization and organization to you, Phyllis? Mm -hmm.
1: That's a a great question. I actually think I struggle with that a little bit to be perfectly honest because they're all very important to me. And they come from this root of I believe from my profession as a and I call myself a gerontological speech and language pathologist because I've spent over 40,000 hours working in long-term care environments, primarily skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes. And so, you know, everything that stems from that comes from that same root, that same passion. And so I can't really say this is more important to me than another thing. But sometimes that is problematic for me, because you have to have priorities. Right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So, so that's,
1: so. that's part of that story. It's a great question. About the <laughs> <rest>. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot that you do. So you would have to prioritize. Just yeah. in order to get shit done.
1: Exactly. You know, I'm starting to be better at it actually. I set a few hours during the day to you know, I had intended to work three hours on this project today, but this I have to answer like yesterday something came up. Yeah. I'm also here we
0: go. <laughs> let's add something else into the mix. I'm also
1: an expert <laughs> on this platform called babyboomer.org. Okay. And it's going to launch in its full bloom soon. It, it just really launched. My books are on there and my blogs, but I also have several courses on there. And so the other day, the IT person sent me what he had listed. And I really had to go through my courses and send him timestamps. Well, that took quite an um, amount of time. And I had to fit that in because they had to get it on the platform. So obviously, I had to be flexible enough to, you know, add and subtract.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Flexibility is definitely key because like you said, things are always going to pop up. It's life. Life happens and we have to deal with it. We have to roll with the punches and just make do when those things come up. So I'm very curious then with you wearing so many hats and being a serial entrepreneur, what does your morning routine look like?
1: You know, I'm sorry to say that I don't have a specific (laughs) one, which is antithetical to success habits really right i do make an effort well i should say i have one in particular okay. and it's a mind hack and i do it in the morning in the evening before i go to bed and in the morning when the first thing when i wake up i really spend about five minutes just making gratitude statements yeah and it could be about the simplest thing right people think gratitude is you know could be this it has to be this large idea yeah, it doesn't have to be. It could be something very simple. So I was grateful that I'm, you know, going to have this podcast discussion with you today. Yeah. I was grateful that some people sent me introductions to some people that you know are probably going to be fantastic conversations. I was grateful that you know I have a, something else scheduled later on today. I was grateful that I was able to send the guy this timestamps yesterday, and that now now my first <laughs> course will be launched on the platform. So yeah. you know. It sets you up for positivity. I think that's an important morning routine because we all have these tapes running in the background and, you know, they say we have between 50 and 80,000 thoughts running through our mind throughout the day and 90% of them are negative. Well, I think it's important for me, especially to really set up this positive mindset. Actually, it's important for everybody, you know,
0: it is. To get in that routine, right?
1: Right. Gratitude journals, they say, you know, write three statements in the morning or at night. Same thing at night because it just kind of sets that tape up for positivity rather than thinking about, you know, the stresses. I didn't
0: get this done or I didn't get that done and just stay positive. And it sets you up when you drift off into sleep. You've gone off with that positive mindset and then you wake up and do it all over again and just keep doing that. Make it a routine. It's absolutely important and integral, I think. To staying on top of things, staying positive, and being in gratitude.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's so easy. Obviously, like you say, we all have challenges. Yeah. But if you can, you're in the throes of it, it's, you know, you're probably not thinking positively at that moment. But afterwards, if it's momentary or after a period of time, you can somehow shift and say, gee, you know, either let me look forward to the next positive thing or. You know, we all have challenges, but what can we get out of it? What can we take from it? What's the lesson
0: in there? Yeah, yeah, it's
1: not so easy. I'm not saying it's easier said than done, but it's training. You have to train your mind to do that.
0: 100%. Phyllis, what drives, motivates, and inspires you to keep going and pushing and excelling at all that you do?
1: That's a great question. Some days it's tougher than others, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's the, you know, the mission. It's my big vision goal which is really to inspire a national conversation and really raise the collective consciousness about how we value, care for, and treat older adults. Because after spending over 40,000 hours in these long-term care settings and seeing that most of them, because people probably have an image that they conjure up about what these you know, environments are like, and probably they're correct. I believe the root Cause of that is that we don't value older adults. We think, okay, they're past their prime. They've done their bit. We may love them in our families, in our yeah. communities, amongst our friends, but as a larger, you know, a larger society, we don't really value older adults. Like they're done. I so- would
0: agree with that. And I think that's a horrible way to look at things. They, these people, these elderly people, they're grandparents. They are parents. They deserve the respect.
1: Absolutely. So I have this philosophy, I've written about it, that, you know, to change people's perspectives, you really have to start when they're young, in my opinion. Yeah, you know? I would agree. So I have this philosophy. And, you know, as time goes on, let's see if I could make inroads in this arena, in the educational system. Mm-hmm. Because if we could have children think that they are like evolving elders, that's an active process that lives inside of them. And it's something to aspire to. You know, like we aspire to, people aspire to climbing Mount Everest. Actually, I yeah. know somebody who who knows somebody who left for base camp yesterday. Okay. Or we use the word senior, you know, when we're in high school or in college. I mean, that seems like such a great thing. Why yeah. don't we think of that in terms of life in our years? Exactly. And so if we can inspire children. To think that it's an active process inside of them, something they want to achieve, then maybe when they look at older people, they'll have that kind of respect. You know, it just dawned on me as we're talking, you know, my granddaughter, she, the oldest one, she'll be 10. Yeah. And I remember a couple of years ago, and I remember myself as a little girl crying that she wants to be like her mommy, right? So. No, and uh, little boys probably want to be like their daddies to a certain extent, right? Yeah. And uh, so what is that? They want to achieve that. They want to get there. But somehow we don't think about that in terms of getting older. And I think we need to do that.
0: You're right. I remember hearing Gary Vee talk about this in a conversation or a a video he was presenting. And he said, if you, like he's speaking to a younger crowd, 20s and 30, 30 something. He said, if you want to learn lessons about life, go fucking volunteer In an old age facility, sit and have conversations with these people. They can teach you so much through their experience. And it's true. I think that should be somehow integrated into, what do you call it? Co-op programs in high schools. Have Uh them go work in a long-term care facility.
1: I, I think that's great. As a matter of fact, near me, I'm in Connecticut, but right on the border of New York. The State University of New York has a campus not far from me. And they are building on their campus, an adult living residence. I think it's fantastic. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh,
1: So, I mean, obviously, listen, I've had those experiences. Some of the greatest things I have learned have been from the people that I have been caring for in long-term care environments. I remember once, I think it was when I turned 50 and I was doing an assessment on someone and I asked her age and she asked what age I am. And I said, well, I'm I'm nearer than further. And <laughs> I told her I was 50. She said, you're just a kid. And I realized <laughs> she was right. like she was 85. Yeah. So when I was born, she was 35. I am a kid and yeah. I don't have those years of experience. Nope. And now that I'm 70, I turned 70 earlier this year. Obviously, my perspective is different, and the experiences I've had in the last 20 years, even in the last year, have just contributed tremendously to how I continue evolving.
0: Absolutely. As mentioned, you do a lot of work, obviously, around and with geriatric patients, long-term care, dementia. I'm curious what inspired you to get into working in this field, and specifically speech and language pathology.
1: So that's a great question. Well, speech and language pathology, I think, was twofold. Okay. It was kind of like default because I didn't know of any other way to channel that interest. But when I was a little girl, and I haven't thought about this for a very long time, and ah, I got to think about it. Like that, <laughs> my mother used to take me, uh, we used to go to museums a lot. Okay. And I used to love standing in front of a painting and hearing the people from all different parts of the world with all different accents and speaking in different languages, talking. And it developed a real interest in speech. That was the first thing. And then I had a high school teacher. I remember her name. And it was just a communications course, but her voice was like a bird. And it was so melodic. It was so beautiful. And so that inspired me in the speech direction. But how I got to working in long-term care or speech therapy, well, when I was about 13, a family moved into where we lived on our block and their son had cerebral palsy. And at the time, they were involved in, I think it was the Bobath method, if I remember correctly, where we would do patterning and the whole community was involved. People would go in several times a day and do this patterning. The idea was to kind of reprogram his brain. And so I think that sparked an interest in working with people who had some kind of impairment, right? Right. So that was one thing. But when I was 15, we moved my grandmother into a nursing home not far from where we lived because she had lived two and a half hours away. My mother would spend several times a week traveling there. And she had had Parkinson's and the results of a broken hip. And uh, that trip became difficult for my mother and took its toll on all of us. And so uh, she moved into a nursing home a few blocks away from us. And there was a period of time my parents were on vacation and my sister and I took turns caring for her during the same hours that my mother would have been there. And I think because of that initial experience, when I walked in there the first time, which was, if we think nursing homes are horrific now, they were worse then, you know, just left an indelible mark on my mind and my heart. And I really believe that was the through line to getting me into the nursing home space. What
0: excites or lights you up the most then, or is the most rewarding thing about the work that you do, Phyllis?
1: So... I had an interesting experience recently. It was just tangential. I was at an event and I ran into somebody I knew who was walking with this young fellow and got into a conversation. He told me that his father had early onset Alzheimer's. And so I started asking him questions and we wound up spending a little bit of time together because of the meeting that these two gentlemen were having. And he told me a little bit, so I already got the picture of where his father was at. I gave him a recommendation, and then I followed up with an email, and I sent him some articles and some information and suggestions, and he sent me back an email that that meeting me and that... Well, actually, I mean, I'm not patting myself on the back, but that it was. No, why not? It was, like dude? A, it was like a gift, and that really does it for me—that I was able to impact him and his family in such a positive way. And it was just happenstance. Well, it was synchronicity. Otherwise, we didn't plan this meeting. It wasn't yeah. the client who called me, and you know, our family, and told me their situation. I said, "Okay, I can help you in this way." This was just synchronicity, right? It just. Came together it, at the right time. So it's that, beautiful
0: to that, get those words of affirmation, right, that letting really, you know
1: that really, yeah, really floats my boat. When
0: I, can do that. <laughs> I love that term. It touches your heart. It's an incredible yeah. feeling to know that you have given and impacted another human being's life, and when they reflect that back to you, it fills your heart. It makes my soul smile when I get things like that, when I experience things like that. It's just, it's so incredible. It fills my cup.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't think people realize how much of an impact they make on other people. You're right. And it can be something very simple. It doesn't have to be because a person has any particular profession. I mean, I find, you know, it's, it's per- people's personality, obviously also, but just a smile sometimes, can, just say you know, that. online at the, the grocery store and you don't know the ripple effect. What's like when you throw a stone in the, Water and yeah. you see the ripples. You don't know how that has not only impacted that person, but but because of how that made them feel, how that will impact the next person. So I just want to give you another little example, and it is sure. about me, but it really touched me. So it was several months ago. I wrote a blog, and I I don't really post on Facebook that much. I should do more, but I don't. And I put this blog up on Facebook. And somebody reached out to me. And this is the son of someone I helped that who I met in a nursing home many years ago. And I stayed in touch with him. I helped them get his father home and helped him with his eating, you know, from a professional perspective. And we stayed in touch for a while. And then obviously we lost touch, right? And I posted this blog and he reached out to me and said how much he was always touched by the kindness and the caring. So those kinds of things, you don't know. I right? would never have known. This is years later. Yeah, that's So right. the ripple effect for each and every one of us, we could have such an important impact in the world, even by just a smile. That's right. Right? It's that so triggers simple. That triggers that
0: you could make someone's day just by that's smiling. Because right. you don't know what that person you're walking past on the street is going right. through. You don't know what they're dealing with. So a smile... Something as simple as a smile can completely turn someone's day around. And that is powerful. To be able to do that for another human being is incredible.
1: Very powerful. I just read something yesterday. Oh, I don't remember who said it. I read it on LinkedIn. Somebody wrote it. Oh, gosh. But it was something like, and maybe one of the listeners might know the roots of this, something about going to a a hotel lobby and shake people's hands and smile and say hello to a person who makes eye contact with you. And I thought it was so interesting because even when you walk along the street, you know, I'm in the New York area. And so people have a tendency not to look at each other for whatever reason without going down that road. (laughs) But you see such a difference when you do smile at somebody. And I say, A smile is the least expensive accessory that goes with every outfit.
0: (laughs) I love that. That's beautiful, Phyllis. Thank you for sharing that. Now, on the flip side of this, what is one of the most difficult parts about the work that you do?
1: Well, I think it's seeing through the years that I worked in nursing homes. It's not an easy journey as, you know, people don't even understand sometimes If they have a loved one in that kind of environment, you know, and they see people laughing and talking and joking. And I had a family member many, many, many years ago who said, oh, you know, she went to the nurse's station. They're all laughing and talking about where they're going out to dinner. They don't care. And I said, not at all. I said, it's a survival mechanism, because if we really thought about all of this, each and every one. We couldn't do it. I mean, yeah. my specialty for many years was working with people who were dependent on ventilation, mechanical ventilation, which okay. most people never even thought about until they heard about it during COVID. Yeah, so yeah. That was really my specialty and my passion. And it's not an easy journey. It tugs at your heart. For uh, sure it does. Well, you're a
0: human being. You have feelings and right. you're empathetic. Obviously, to be working in this industry, right. you have to be.
1: Right, so it's not easy. I think that's one of the hardest parts. Yeah. And even now that I'm away from that, and in this other direction, which we'll talk about, it's when I see people who are suffering, who aren't taking the best care of themselves, and then wind up with a variety of conditions that I don't believe they really need to have in all cases. If they made different choices, it hurts me. You yeah, know? because I want to help them. I come yeah. from a helping place.
0: You have spent a lot of time, as you said, 40,000 hours working in long-term care. And how has the world of being in long-term care, working in it for so long, evolved from say the time you started your career up until today? And has it changed for the better or has it gotten progressively worse in terms of the care and how things are run?
1: So that's a good question. I think there are many sides to that answer. So when I first started out, Nobody even really cared about speech pathology or what a speech therapist was. It was like a necessary evil. They really didn't care. And I had to learn how to make it relevant for the people who owned or ran nursing homes. And then it changed because the reimbursement structure changed. And then it became a little bit more relevant. And then as time went on, it became a little more relevant And actually the things that I was saying many years earlier, all of a sudden people cared about. It's true. My services were retained by somebody to write how to develop a speech program because nobody really knew how to do it because nobody really cared about it. And that was really what I was after. It wasn't just going in when I was called to do an evaluation for the one person maybe that had a stroke or that's really who they cared about at the time. So I was always trying to make it more relevant for the larger community that lived there. So I had developed different strategies, developed different programs. So when the changes came about, people came to me and said, oh, can you write this up and and teach this to people? So I, I actually did do that. But I think as time has gone on, now it's flipped back a little bit because reimbursement, it was abused for a variety of ways without going into the specifics of that it was (laughs) abused and so now you know i said that when some of the changes first came out i said to people listen they're going to look at this down the road and i'm telling you it's not going to be a pretty picture and sure enough that's what happened and so now it's kind of turned in the other direction a little bit not that they don't care about speech and language pathology because there are still ways they could benefit from that but it's just doesn't have the same impact that it did before. And the other thing is while nursing homes in the past just weren't great places because nobody really cared about them. Now it's become such a business. It is a true business. And because of that, it's a money driven business and a real estate driven business. And so that is really the base of, of the business model, not caring for people
0: which is horrible. I mean,
1: I'm sorry to say,
0: I'd love to further get on to this. And so what would you say then are the top three biggest issues within the long term care systems that you've seen emerge in the last, like, I guess, you're not working in that particular area anymore. But in the last decade that you were involved, and I mean, I'm sure you still have contact with the long-term care facility. So what have you seen as the top three issues that have emerged in the last decade or so versus when you first got involved?
1: Well, I think everybody probably knows that nursing homes suffer from inadequate staffing. So that's a major, major, major issue because everything, you could almost say everything stems from inadequate staffing. So inadequate staffing is going to lead to inadequate care or inadequate caring. Yeah. And I while there is oversight, I mean there are tremendous issues with oversight. People become familiar with the people doing the oversight and then penalties aren't really the answer, especially if they're nominal penalties. You know, the nursing home industry is a tremendous lobby with tremendous influence, so I see that as an an issue. I would say the inadequate staffing I'd say the fact that it's become such a business and it's mostly a real estate business. Yeah. And then I'd say also that, you know, the lobbying, there's a lot of money that goes into the lobbying for the nursing home industry. I'm going to give you an example. Sure. Okay. I wrote about it in my first book. Obviously, I'm not going to say where or the name of the company. That's irrelevant. No. I would yeah, never do of course. that. Because I might not be sitting here talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> no. But seriously, so this was something I found when I was writing my first book, which was in 2017. And there was a politician who was running for office. When there was a person who owned a company And this person was applying to own another building or another set of buildings. But they had tremendous deficiencies in that building, serious deficiencies. And so if you had those kinds of deficiencies, you really shouldn't be allowed to be buying more buildings because you already have serious neglectful situations in the buildings you already own. Exactly. However... As with many situations in this country and many countries, not just America, but, you know, countries around the world, money talks and politics makes for strange bedfellows. And this particular owner contributed a sizable amount of money to this politician's campaign. And sure enough, he was allowed to buy other buildings. So I'm just saying that, you know, that's the way unfortunately it goes. And as I say, it, it's very antithetical to me because you've gone into the taking care of people business.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, how then, in your opinion, do you think we can begin? to repair or fix the mm. issues that are plaguing the long-term care facilities and, and start getting better treatment mm. for the elderly. I mean, I know here in Canada, things are, are horrible in the homes too. They get treated like crap. And I know firsthand as I saw the conditions because my grandmother was in a long-term care facility. And it was disgusting. Honestly, Phyllis, I would walk in there and I swear to God, I was walking onto the set of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It was yeah. horrible. To right. see these people sitting around the, so they had the reception desk, and then it was in a, like a circular area. You go off down different hallways, and you'd see these elderly people sitting in wheelchairs and talking to themselves right. and drooling all like it's horrible. And they're just there, sitting right. there like they're, they're, they're statues, like they're furniture.
1: I was just going to say, like a bag of flour yeah. with people to people. Yeah. So there are other models of care. They've been developed by many different people. There is one model in the United States that was developed by a a brilliant guy. He's one of my favorite people, both personally and professionally. He knows that. So it's (laughs) it's kind of an open secret. Actually, after I got to know him and after a period of time, I said to him, Bill, I'm sure you've heard. He said, yes, I have. (laughs) But there are other models of care in the United States. He developed something called the Greenhouse Project, the Eden Alternative. It really is about person-centered caring. It's about dignity. It's about respect. It's about quality of life, life with purpose. There are only about 300 of them around the country in the United States now. But they really do provide a different kind of living. I visited several of them, and I would live there. I mean, it's living it's really living. But I, I really believe that you don't have to redesign your building according to some of the constructs that those models follow, but it's a mindset shift. Yeah, you know, it's, it's how you think about the people that are living in your environment. And so from my perspective, it really starts with the people that are in your employee who you want to care for the people that they're supposed to be caring for. And that actually, if I can, I'll segue into my empathy. Sure, absolutely. Because that's where it started. I was actually doing a training in a building, upstate New York, based on a one-hour presentation I did at their annual seminar. And it was called Communication and Empathy Improving Behavioral Outcomes. And they had me come and train the entire staff. It was really great was over three days, you know, three sessions, uh, several sessions a day over each shift for each shift. Anyway, and during this program, I was doing these exercises, because how are you going to get in touch with another person if you're not in touch with yourself? So I did some exercises around those lines. And there was a guy there who did mindfulness training and meditation, he said, oh, it's like the inner game of empathy and self-empathy. And I went home and I started thinking about it and I came up with this word empathy. So I wound up trademarking it and I have a program that goes along with it. So I started really doing this in healthcare facilities and for individuals, for healthcare workers and for families. Right. Because people is what I call an SOS mode, stressed, overwhelmed and stretched. Right. Right. And so as time went on, I realized that if leadership management cared for the people and they invested in the self-care of the people that work for them, they would be more resilient. They would be less burned out. That would help them personally with themselves in their family relationships but would also help them in caring for the people that they're caring for.
0: This can I I just want to jump in here because this boggles my mind. And it's such a simple concept as you just laid out. And I think if all corporations took a page from that and realize that, you know what, if we treat our staff well, and with respect, they are going to work that much harder for us, they are going to work that much better because they'll come to work happy because they're happy to be there. If they're treated well, they're going to reciprocate that. And it will reflect in the work that they do. It will reflect in their personal life. It's a very simple concept, yet these fucking corporations can't get it through their goddamn heads. I don't get it.
1: I I mean, and so I've been pounding the pavement. So that's my new passion, actually. (laughs) I've been pounding the pavement about that for quite some time. To get businesses, and I guess I'd start with medium-sized businesses, but you know there are some larger businesses and corporations that get it. I mean, Google gets it. In Japan, they get it. There are some places that do get it, but yeah, so I have this program that goes along with it, and my really big vision goal as far as business goes is for businesses to really want to invest in the self-care of their workforce because in turn- it will not only improve their work performance, even if they want to think about it from a selfish point of view, they will be more productive and it will benefit the bottom line. And, you know, I thought about it when I couched it that way. I thought, gee, that's not much different than what I did when I was developing speech and language programs, clinical programs and building where I made it relevant for their reimbursement for their bottom line, because I'm not saying people shouldn't care about their bottom line.
0: Of course they should. They're a business. It's Right,
1: but it's how you get there.
0: That's right. And it shouldn't be the absolute focus. The people should be first. And these companies preach this people first bullshit. I worked for a company like that corporation and it was complete bullshit. No, it wasn't. It's all about the bottom line. And you know what I think would also help bolster this is if we start teaching the mindfulness and things like that in schools, teach the children. They are the future. They're going to be moving into and working in these corporations in this world. So why wouldn't we teach our children about mindfulness, meditation, self-care? They need to learn with all the bullshit that they teach in schools, get rid of the crap that they don't use in their lives that they're never going to use and teach them skills that they can actually utilize throughout the course of their lives.
1: Well, these are life skills, just yes. like they don't teach finance. They don't exactly. teach um,
0: home economics, like, shop, all of these things. We, we used things. to
1: have those. Yes, I we did. I, I did too. And not only that, they don't teach you parenting. No. And they should teach something about parenting, yeah. in my opinion. I agree. Because there are no handbooks. And you learn from what you glean from yeah. your parents, both positive and negative. Yes. Sometimes you don't even think you're going to pass on the negative, but you do anyway yeah. because that's what you know, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, know it intimately well, and sometimes we can't help that. You know, I I don't know about you, but I've heard my daughter say, "I can't believe I said that," and I <laughs> and I remember saying that, "I can't believe I said that." Do it because I told you to. What?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I said so. <laughs> Wait a minute. When did you become the judge and jury?
1: (laughs) I remember I tell this story very often. You know, I was about 13 at the time and we used to go to Chinese restaurants on Sunday. And I came from a Jewish family and my mother had, we had a very kosher home in the home, but not outside the home, but very, very kosher in the home. (laughs) <laughs> and I remember, I could see the picture. We were sitting in this Chinese restaurant. My mother was eating a spare rib or an egg roll or something. And I told her, well, there was pork in there. And, you know, we weren't allowed to eat that in the house. And so she said to me, so I'm 70, so I was 13. So that was 57 years ago, right? Yeah. Uh, so she told me what parents said, probably for the most part, 57 years ago. Shut up and mind your business, right? <laughs>
0: children are to be seen and not heard right. at the table so
1: now fast forward when my daughter was about i think she was about six we went on vacation for a few days and they had a you know buffet and they had frog's legs on this buffet, and i took some frogs of my daughter wanted to try it and my ex-husband my husband at the time said to her you know do you know what that is? That's a, from a frog. And he said, ribbit, ribbit, you know, like, yeah. you sound yeah. and she turned to him and said, well, you eat duck, don't you? Quack, quack. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of the conversation. Now, there you go. You know, when I was little, I might not be sitting here and talking to you.
0: <laughs> yeah. You would have got a backhand and <laughs> that would have been it. Right. Cause again, my, I can remember my mom telling me stories when she was growing up and my grandfather was children are to be seen and not heard at the table. You don't speak unless you're spoken to at the dinner table, and that's it. It's right. like, can you imagine that now? Like,
1: what? Absolutely. F- yes. <laughs> Although I didn't 100% come from that. I have to be honest. My father, he thought it was very important to know what's going on in your community, in your state, in your country. He read the newspaper every night. We listened to the news every day, and he would always bring up topics of conversation. He would always ask, not did you have a good day, but tell me something you did in school. Tell me something you learned. Then we'd have a conversation. So I kind of grew up in a household where questioning was very important. And he always encouraged me to ask questions. So- That's how you learn. (laughs) That's how you do That is one of the fundamental ways you learn. Whether you're listening to somebody and asking questions or you question based on something you're reading or seeing- It's about questioning.
0: Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about your journey into the world of being an author. You've mentioned that you've written books. You're a best-selling author. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience, the title of the book, what it was all about?
1: So it started with the nursing home industry. I have been talking about writing a book for a while. And actually, just yesterday, I was looking through some old papers and found the beginning of a book. I was started with a social worker I worked with. 25 years ago. Holy cow. But we never finished that project. But it was about the same thing about educating families, bringing people's attention. And that's before all of this really started, right? But where I specifically started, I was working in this nursing home, this skilled nursing facility. They had called me, they had heard about me, and the place went from not-for-profit to for-profit. That's another thing I would tell people to look out for. If it's for-profit, that's you you really have to ask your questions. Do you do diligence? See who owns it? Because that's a very different world than not-for-profit. And so they had called me to develop the program there. They took ownership on a Friday and I came in on a Monday because they had heard about the programs I developed. Anyway, after about a year and a half, the administrator, who I like very much, even to this day, yeah. said, you know, we don't need you anymore. I could get two for the price of you. You've done a great job, but thanks.
0: Wow. <laughs> he was
1: devastated. Had he not said that to me that day, I might still be there. But maybe it's a good thing he did. Who knows? There you go. Yes. And I still call him Jake. I could get to for the price of you guy. It's become (laughs) a joke. So it's nice that I could laugh about it that way and he can too. But anyway, nevertheless, that company that was in Westchester County and they did own several nursing homes in that area and in New York. I found out they had purchased a building in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was like, what is this guy from Long Island doing in Nashville, Tennessee? Like I had never heard of such a thing up to that point. And so I started looking into it. And then I said, oh my God, this is not a local story. Because, you know, when you work in an arena in a specific area, you know, the people in that arena and you think the issues are related only to that area. Yeah. So, you know, you live in kind of a cocoon. Yeah. So now I said, oh my God. I'd started doing research. I said, this is a national issue. Oh my goodness gracious. Somebody needs to write about this. I mean, I didn't know people had already written about it, but somebody needs to write about this and inform people. So they really know what their rights are. They need to become more informed and effective advocates. And I remember doing some research coming across this woman who had been working in the field for decades. And I reached out to her. We had a wonderful conversation and she encouraged me. And that was the beginning of my journey in writing. That was my first book. It was called Nursing Homes to Rehabilitation Centers, What Every Person Needs to Know. It got very academic and in the weeds. And I thought, oh, I wrote a book. Oh, here I am. (laughs) I've (laughs) arrived. It doesn't go like that. No. And then I realized only about a, a year and a half or two years later, it wasn't very readable. It became very academic, that book. So then I decided to kind of repurpose it. Okay. And uh, I was listening to some publishing challenge and he said something about re-releasing a book. And I said, oh, I think I'll do that. And so I did. And then the next one was called Overdue, Quality Care for Our Elder Citizens, which indeed is overdue. And then I wanted to write another one. And the last one that is my own book is Dignity and Respect, Are our aging parents getting what they deserve? We know the answer is no. Yeah. And then since then, I've been a contributing author, a co-author in a couple of books, and that's how I got to number one Wall Street Journal and USA bestseller. But, you know, I I continue to write. I have another chapter coming out in the next couple of months in a book called Impact, and it is about empathy. It's about going from SOS, stressed, overwhelmed, and stretched, To SOS, Strategies of Success.
0: Ah, I love that, that.
1: That's the chapter coming out in a couple of months, I think.
0: Beautiful. Well, that's a great segue into talking about another platform because you're also a podcast host. Can you share with us a little bit about the podcast, what it's all about, the title, content, all of these things, and what inspired you?
1: So that's interesting. And I would tell, I think we had a wonderful conversation before this started.
0: (laughs) Yes, we did.
1: (laughs) And you had sent me some ideas for talking points and questions, things you wanted me to think about. And one of the questions was, what would you tell your younger self, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And sometimes you just don't know where your background is going to lead. And I would say to be open to your passions and your ideas and don't be afraid of them. That's one thing I would say. So how did I get to, who would ever have thought that I would be doing a podcast? <laughs> Never in a million and a half years, trust me, I would say, you're nuts. <laughs> but, and I, I would also say, don't be afraid to take the first leap, even if you don't see the entire staircase. I found that a phrase someplace. So what happened was I had written this first book and, you know, okay, nobody cared. Right. And I didn't even have a website. I mean, I didn't know what to do with it. I just right. thought I wrote a book and somehow the know. Yeah. I, know I wrote a I mean, how ridiculous was that? But okay, whatever. You don't know what you don't know. That's, That's right. Thing. You don't yeah. know what you don't know. And so I called the local radio station and I said, I wanted to come and talk about this book. I knew the owner of the radio station. I didn't know if he was still there, but I knew him and the manager of the station. I had met him through my local chamber of commerce. I was very active in that for a couple of years. And so I called a few times and then one day I got a phone call and the manager asked me about it. And he said, I have the perfect show for you. And the gal called me. And she said, okay, come on the show. Now, here's the thing. (laughs) I had never really been in a radio studio before. And I walked in. I said, what the heck was I thinking? (laughs) Are you nuts? Anyway, we had a phenomenal conversation. She's a phenomenal host. She's been at it for a very long time and is a communications person. I think she studied theater. I mean, she brings all of that to it. Anyway, nevertheless, I thanked her. In an email, a follow up email, and she sent me back an email saying that I was a natural and I would have my own show someday. And I was like, I don't know what the heck she's talking about. <laughs> what? <laughs> anyway. In a
0: million years, one of those right, moments again, right?
1: Exactly. But when I left there, I was so thrilled with the conversation. I said, I'd like to come back. And so I came back about a month later. And then we decided that I would come every three or four weeks, which I did for about a year and a half. And then after about a year, she had me bring on my own guests on her show. So it was a guest of a guest. I guess she was trying to, she was leading me to try and (laughs) do the show on their network. But I, you know, it's a local business network. Yeah. And I was in conversations with somebody I was introduced to. And I said to her, why don't we do a podcast? She also came from this space, more assisted living. She was a gerontologist and I started looking at platforms and I came across voice America and I contacted them and they thought this would be a great idea because obviously, you know, this segment of the population is growing by leaps and bounds. So the first show was called voices for elder care advocacy. And that gal dropped out of it, but I knew somebody else in California. We had forged a, some kind of relationship. And I asked her if she would sponsor sh- the show. She said, gee, can I be your co-host? I said, sure. So we did that for about a year or so. And like I said, it was called Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. And then after a time, I just felt it needed more energy, needed a different name, And I guess I wanted to forge doing it on my own. The reason being, really, I mean, we had interviewed many thought leaders and we covered many topics. All we say, bringing informative conversations to the senior years of our lives. Actually, that's the tagline for the podcast, which the title is Seniors Straight Talk. And that's the tagline, bringing informative conversations to the senior years of our lives. So it's not only about interviewing thought leaders, it's interviewing many, many people. And really, when I started it, at that point, you know, I had written a couple of books. I kind of wanted to prove to myself that I could hold my own in a conversation with some of these really big thought leaders in my space. And that's what I did. And I've interviewed some phenomenal people, entrepreneurs, people in my space. I interviewed Bill Thomas, who developed the Greenhouse Homes and the Eden Alternative several times, you know, and and many politicians. I did interview a national lobbyist for the nursing Ah. home industry, interestingly enough. His name is Mark Parkinson. People ask me how I got that interview. I said, well, you just have to keep at it. I told Bill Thomas a couple of weeks ago when we were on the phone, Relentless, my name should be under the ignition of the word Relentless. People probably say, oh, here she comes again.
0: <laughs> again, this woman. I used to
1: say that in nursing homes. I used to, you know, it, you know, address the elephant in the room. Yeah. I used to go say it to an administrator, a director of nurses. I know what you're thinking. Here she comes again. <laughs> Can somebody do something with her? Why do we still have her here? You know, it was because I was saying they need to do something better and programming change and things. all of that, and yeah. change. Yeah. And people are very comfortable with where they are, and yeah. they don't always want to make change, absolutely. even if it's for the betterment yeah. of the environment. It's just change is uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know?
1: The only thing you could really depend on is change.
0: Yep, yeah, for sure.
1: Because change is coming.
0: For sure. Phyllis, what do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful?
1: Well, I think that, I think I just hit on it a little bit. It's relentlessness. I think it's also following your vision, not being afraid to follow that, not be limited Everybody talks about limited mindset, limited thinking. You know, the flip side of that for me is I have so many creative ideas. It is sometimes difficult to rein them in and focus on on one or two or three, let's say, yeah. that are really on the direct path of where I'm going. I am getting better at that. But, you know, it's just what I said. Like, who would have ever thought? That I would have been doing a podcast. It never is something that would have entered my mind. I would say, you know, that I'm not afraid to take that leap of faith. I mean, you might not be successful at it, you might fail, but what do they say about Wayne Gretzky? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Exactly. I mean, isn't that true? Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, look, I'm in the process of raising money for a screenplay based on two books that Bill Thomas wrote. I read the first book before I ever met him. I said, this is a film. This is the vehicle I believe I need to raise this consciousness and inspire this conversation. Over time, I met him. When I first broached the film idea, I I know he just thought that was ridiculous. (laughs) And I don't know why. He's a very forward-thinking person. I mean, as a visionary... But anyway, nevertheless, then I read the sequel and I decided that was really the title and the subject matter. It's around the same subject, but it's just presented in a different way. And I have just kept at it. There isn't a person that I speak to that I don't tell about this project. And interestingly enough, just a couple of weeks ago, I was introduced to an actor who has a production company, and he's very interested in bringing this project to fruition so that never would have happened had i not consistently talked about it but that also came from giving in a way it was through a platform that is developing alzheimer's prescriptives and a vaccine it's alzheimer's neuro it's what it's called okay And I connected them with a neuroscientist studying brain capital. And so we got into that whole conversation about what's the other side of that coin. The other side of that coin is I think it's great if people live longer, if they live healthier, Or if they have Alzheimer's, if the progression is slow to some degree, but if we don't value and care for and treat older people in a better way, what's the point? And then I went into my film project idea. (laughs) It was a perfect segue. And they introduced me to this, to Willie Ames. And uh, there you go. So had I not been persistent and constantly talking about this, but who would have ever thought like that in years, right?
0: Exactly. It's beautiful. It's synchronistic. And right. as a result of your relentlessness and right. and belief in what you're doing and standing up for what you're doing. So I think it's beautiful. Speaking of success, Phyllis, how do you define that word? What does the word success mean to you?
1: Success isn't a destination. Success is a journey. It's a process. And, you know, I guess I'd feel successful when the film is made. I'd feel success in that project coming to fruition. So I, I think it's more... Like when something comes from winches, Like I felt a sense of success when I published each of my books. I was yeah. like, oh wow, I finished this project. But that it's not a destination, in my opinion. It's a journey. It's a constant. So that's what I would say really about success. Okay. Yes, have I achieved certain benchmarks? Absolutely. I mean, I feel a sense of success that I'm an expert on this platform, babyboomer.org. Next to Ken Deitwald, I mean, he's like huge in this space. And so, I mean, I had been trying to get Ken Dykewald on my podcast for several months, about a year or so ago, and was in touch with his company. I think it's called Age Wave. But anyway, now I'm on a platform next to him as an expert, like who would have thought, right? Never so a million that's years. that's a sense of achievement and success, yeah. but that's not a destination.
0: What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before learning that? What was your life like after you learned it?
1: You know, it's something that I think I heard from somebody who is the wise advice that he gives many people. His name is Greg Reed and he is the producer. I think I've told you about these phenomenal events. Yes. And I think it's don't seek the opinion of others. Seek wise counsel because counsel, when you seek wise counsel, In all likelihood, it's somebody who's traveled that journey and could give you insights, recommendations, directions, because they've traveled that road. Almost like we're talking about elder wisdom, right? Yeah. But if you seek people's advice, well, very often that's just people who have an opinion and they haven't done it oftentimes. So, I mean, I would think that I've really learned that from going to... His events and meeting people that have walked a certain journey and taking counsel from them. I would say that that's a very important that I've learned. So it's not like I'm asking the person next to me or my family, what do you think? As a matter of fact, I don't share a lot of what I'm doing with certain members of my family anymore because it doesn't matter. Yeah. It only matters the people who tell me, listen, I think you're on a path. This is what you need to know about this. Let me introduce you to somebody who might be able to to help you you get there in that area. Because somebody in my family might say, what the heck are you doing that for? Like, what do you know about making a film? No, I don't. It's true. But
0: (laughs) But that's a great distinction. I love that. Thank you for sharing that, Phyllis. What is an unexpected blessing or occurrence in your life that you're grateful for?
1: I would say, listen, I turned 70. And I'm vital and active and, you know, continue to learn and interested and passionate and following new ideas and roads. And I'm very grateful for that. Extremely grateful. I don't think about it often enough to be perfectly honest. And I hadn't thought about that until you just asked me that question. And interestingly enough, for many years, Especially working in the long term care environment. And there are many people in that environment. People think it's all people that are like 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s. It's not true at all. There are many people in long term care that are much younger, you know, for whatever reason. And especially when I was working with people who were dependent on mechanical ventilation or who had trachs or respiratory conditions, you know, I would say sometimes, gee, you know, we complain about the small things, but You know, these people can't take a breath on their own and how thankful we have to be for that. And we forget that sometimes since I forgot it until you just asked me that question. And
0: that's that whole gratitude practice, too, that we spoke about earlier. Who in your life has had the biggest impact on you and why?
1: Huh? Great question. Well, I think I have a couple, Mm -hmm. actually. So I said about my father, who always encouraged questioning. That you learn by questioning and being aware and interested in your community, in your state, in your country. I mean, that was very important to him to be a, what's the word I'm thinking of? To be an informed citizen. And about questioning, he always used to tell, my sister was seven years my senior. And he always used to say to her, do you believe everything you see and read? And hear me? Leave half of what you see And less of what you hear, something like that. So I think those were important lessons. That goes with questioning. Don't just take it at face value, no matter what it is. Yeah, for sure. And the funny thing is, I had my first mentor, I'd say, was a college professor. And even to this day, sometimes when I achieve something, I'll say, gee, he would be proud of me. It's funny. (laughs) He had a tremendous impact. He was a debate and argumentation coach, but he was a really smart guy, encouraged me in many different arenas. And I didn't go down those paths, but he saw something in me. And now when I kind of go down those paths, I say, wow, he would be proud. Love it. He had a tremendous impact. I'd say from that point of view, yeah. you know, if I just had to select two people off the top of my head, but of course there've been many others who've impacted me and are important part of this journey. So I'm going to say, I mentioned his name earlier, which is Bill Thomas. So he was called a visionary. I don't, did I say that earlier? And he developed these models of care. And when I first read his book, Life Worth Living, it was about how he transformed this nursing home. And I said, wow, you know, this guy's my personal and professional hero because I've had difficulty making the smallest changes, and look what he did. I mean, he brought a- animals and plants, and I mean, birds. I mean, I <laughs> hundreds, hundreds, yeah. and this state allowed him to do that. New York State, and when I finally met him. And I met him through somebody else. I said I was dying to meet him. And they said, wow, he's a friend of mine. Okay. And I had him on my podcast. And then a few months later, when I was writing my third book, I wanted him to write the foreword. I must have emailed him several times. And people said he wouldn't do that. And he doesn't do that. And then I got this email from him. He said he'd be happy to write. (laughs) I (laughs) had one conversation with him on my podcast. And he wrote something very complimentary to me in this email. And that kind of has carried me forward for a long time. And he knows that. I always say he was the, you know, in, in what I'm doing on this path. Yeah, He was the person that really said, you know, I see, see something in you. I won't say the words he actually used, but I see something in you and go forth and conquer because you can do it. So I, I think, you know, there are always people along the line, hopefully, yeah. that have inspired you or that you've learned from. And
0: Absolutely. So- what does the word empowerment mean to you?
1: mm I would say living your truth, whatever that is, feeling that for yourself. Nobody has to give you empowerment. You have to seize it. You have to feel it. You have to take it. Yeah, it's not always easy. I think is. I don't want to stereotype and say as women it's harder than for than for men, but I think that it is a journey for women in a different way. I think for maybe the the generation coming up now, maybe not so much. Yeah. But when I was coming up, I think it wasn't that easy a road.
0: For sure. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid-fire section, so the next grouping of questions just be one, two, three. Oh, ones, gee. Can <laughs> you could do it. Phyllis, how would you describe yourself in one word?
1: I'm not good at one words. As you can tell.
0: <laughs> Come on, you can do it. I oh, believe my in you. goodness. Um, you, you've already used the word today in our conversation.
1: Uh, creative, empathetic, I don't know. Relentless, which word relentless. <laughs> oh, relentless, right. See, I didn't even- I am relentless. That is true.
0: There you go. If you People came-
1: can think of that <laughs> positive and negatively though, so
0: uh, uh, we're gonna use it in only a positive light. Right. If you came with a warning label, what would yours say? Be ready. If you could teach the world one thing, what would that one thing be? Empathy. What's one thing you want but cannot buy with money?
1: Total self belief.
0: What is one of your favorite entrepreneurial books?
1: Oh my god, I just went to say it.
0: And <laughs> <It> escaped. <laughs>
1: Oh, my gosh. I just went to say it. Napoleon Hill's book. Thinking, Thinking Rich. It. There you go.
0: What is your favorite self-care practice?
1: My positive mind hacks. It's one of my favorites, really. One of them.
0: And that concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. What is something surprising you've learned about yourself in the past year?
1: That's a great question. It goes back to what we were talking about being relentless, really, in a way, because... You know, even though I was talking about this film project and, you know, I talked about it with everybody and I, I kept saying, I don't know how or where or why or how it's going to get done. I did believe it, but because you really don't know that path. So the fact that just a couple of weeks ago that I was talking with somebody who's in the process of filming with Robert Redford, I was just like blown away that, yeah. oh my goodness, how did this really happen? You know, I know how it happened. I believed it, but I was kind of surprised at the same time. Does that make sense?
0: Yep, yep, absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, a friend and colleague, I've known him for over 20 years, he keeps telling me that I should write my book. And, you know, I I kind of have a title, but because how do you go from just, you know, just being a speech therapist-
0: That's not just-
1: Yeah, that's just not a just, but how do you go from that to every time I tell him about some of these connections or people or situations, he's just more amazed than the time before. And, you know, I think it goes along with confidence. Yeah. It goes along with confidence because the fact that, yeah, I think I do still suffer from lack of confidence a hundred percent. We all
0: do from time to time. We all go through that and deal with that. We're human. (laughs)
1: <laughs> i think that no i think that it's people you know reaffirming the value that i have in so many different areas and I, I i guess i never would have thought about meeting you know people of a certain stature and asking me for help or advice or whatever right. so i think that's been very reaffirming for me not that a person should need that but, but it's nice to point, have but it's nice to have absolutely, absolutely.
0: What would you say is one of the worst pieces of advice you've ever gotten? I want to flip it and say, people usually ask what's the best piece. I want to know what's the worst piece you've ever gotten.
1: Ah, oh, don't do that. You'll never be able to do that.
0: <laughs> I love it. What is one thing you love about yourself that is not related to your physical appearance?
1: My passion, my dedication.
0: How do you celebrate your wins?
1: You know, I just have a sense of satisfaction, happiness, accomplishments. I smile. I tell myself, wow, that was great. You know, I'm just going to go back, if I may, to when you said about a self-care practice, which I think it's helpful for anybody to really look in the mirror I used to do it every day. I, I think I missed it the past few days for a variety of reasons. I haven't been a hundred percent feeling so well, but you know, look in the mirror and say what you're grateful for about yourself, what you're happy for, what you're proud of yourself for what you've accomplished. But I don't mean just look at the mirror. I mean, look at yourself in the mirror and look at a person smiling back at you. That's, you know, there are endorphins that develop, yep. is, you know, that you feel your hormones and chemicals and really uplift you. But also say to yourself what you haven't been so happy about and how you intend to rectify that.
0: Love it. Mirror work is so important. I mean, the relationship we have with ourselves is the hands down most important relationship we will ever have in our entire lives. And it's the longest lasting relationship we'll ever have. Treat yourself with love. Everything starts here within. We are the foundation for absolutely everything. Everything starts within us and self. You
1: you know, I say the place to begin is within and the time to begin is now. So it doesn't matter what age you are. If you haven't done it, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Yeah. So you can start that at any time. I don't care what age you are. That's right. But it will have tremendous benefits for you. And not only for you it but ripples the people out of yes you know, and the people <laughs> that in your family the people they will even see a difference absolutely and it so you, will affect you know, them as well
0: just like we said know, earlier with the smile
1: yeah you know a couple of days ago my daughter sent me they're redoing their kitchen and she sent me pictures of her cabinets and i said they're beautiful and they were coming on saturday and i asked her if they came she said yeah but you know Oh, it likely won't get done till the end of the summer, so whatever. And I said to her, think differently about it. Just think. You never know. Yeah. Just think differently. Think, wow, these cabinets came. They look great. I can't wait until they're up and the kitchen is finished. I got a text. She said, okay. And she doesn't really subscribe to that kind of flip thinking so much. I got a text message from her yesterday with a picture of what she selected for the floor. And she said, we're doing it this weekend. I said,
0: (laughs) there you go.
1: (laughs) It was just flipping that script in your head. That's right. Um, By the way, that's also not an easy thing to do. No. To be able to just flip it. And so when you're in the throes of something, if you can, you know, reframe it in some way, shape or form, or even afterwards, it's very important. And in terms of what I tell a younger person, tell my younger self, you attract who you are and what you are, both negative and positive.
0: Yep, absolutely. So if you're
1: putting out negativity, you'll likely get more of it.
0: It's going to come right back to you. For and sure. here
1: she said, okay, I'm going to do that. And look, a few days later, by some mir- mir- miracle, whatever, however that happened, yep. now it's going to get done this weekend. Exactly. And had she not done that, they probably would have not made any progress and it wouldn't have gotten done till the end of the summer. That's right.
0: If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one-hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why?
1: Hmm. Well, there is one person I've been dying to talk to for a long time, for years. And that's Maria Shriver. Hmm. Okay. I saw her at a luncheon several years ago. I thought she was phenomenal. I loved her authenticity, her openness about what she experienced. But because of her work in Alzheimer's research, I really want to have a conversation with her about the other side of that coin, which is it's not just about cure, but it's about caring. And how are we caring for the people that are living with Alzheimer's now and their families? I'm sure, you know, if I thought about women in history, but just I actually have Maria Shriver's name on my mirror. And I look at it every day. So, I mean, you never know because I met somebody recently who I may be co-authoring a book with. We're still in conversation and she knows somebody who knows Maria Shriver. So you you just don't
0: put it out there. I
1: would love to have a conversation with her and a conversation with her on her podcast well there you go that very topic
0: you've just put it out into the universe through this yeah. conversation so yeah. you never know <laughs>
1: wouldn't you never, that be incredible never, never know you if, never know
0: if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice what would that piece of advice be
1: i think what i just said you attract who you are both positive and negative and whether you think you can or you think you can't you're right
0: love it Lastly, Phyllis, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, your corner of the world, your tribe, your people, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart?
1: That we have to care for and value and treat older people with the dignity and respect that they deserve because they are repositories of history and what you learn from them, with them and through them will have tremendous impact for your person and for whatever endeavor you are pursuing.
0: Beautifully said. Phyllis, thank you so very much for this incredibly beautiful, inspirational, and educational conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I've thoroughly enjoyed every minute of our conversation. You're such a beautiful soul. and I truly appreciate from the bottom of my heart all the incredible work you're doing with these initiatives they are so important and they get forgotten and swept under the rug and so just please keep shining your bright beautiful light out into the world through all the incredible work you do i think it's amazing and i just appreciate you and i'm honored to have you as a member of the empowerography community so thank you for taking and making the time to be here with me today hey
1: thank you so much this conversation has been enlightening and i would say for me even transformative so i have to thank you
0: Thank you. I really appreciate that. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Phyllis Iman. She is an ambassador for Conscious Aging Life Management, the founder of Mindful Longevity Solutions. She has the trademark for empathy, the hallmark of the Empathy Project. She's a best-selling author, a coach, a gerontological speech and language pathologist, a dementia care specialist, and a podcast host. I appreciate you, Phyllis. Have an amazing rest of the day.
1: Thanks. Same to you. And uh, I hope all the listeners really enjoy this conversation as much as I did.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca, follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast, and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.